How many of you normally come to the first service, but you goofed your time up? <laughs> okay, at least one. Well, thank you. We're glad you made it. <laughs> uh, picture this. Somebody decides, you know, this is going to be the year that I'm going to make a radical redirection with my lifestyle concerning my health. And so they go and they find an expert. This expert's going to, you know, deal with their nutrition, their eating habits, their sleep habits, their exercise. It's just going to coach them in toward a totally healthy lifestyle. So the first, the first person gets this coach that works with them for one solid month in acclimating them with this new healthy lifestyle. The second person gets a coach, an expert, that works with them for 18 months, hands-on, 18 months. The third person gets a coach, and the coach works with them for three solid years, hands-on. Now, this is a, not a trick question. Which one do you think is the least likely to maintain the healthy lifestyle for the rest of their life? The first one, right? Because they were only there with them for a month. The longer that the expert is there with them, helping them to uh, experience structured living, to experience these habits developing, the, the more likelihood of it becoming a lifestyle. What I just described to you is exactly what the Apostle Paul did in three different places. We read last week in Acts chapter 17, for you that were here, that he went into this city of Thessalonica and he stayed there for only one month because the people forced him out. The political authorities, the Jewish, um, Jewish you know, resistance pushed him out. And so he had to leave Thessalonica and go to Berea. So he gathered people that put their faith in Christ, became followers of Christ. But he could only stay with them one month. He leaves and goes to Berea. From Berea, he goes to Athens. From Athens, he goes to Corinth. Now, if you were to read on your own in Acts chapter 18, you will find that he stays in Corinth for 18 months. 18 months. So that's a long time to get your, your legs under you and to see what is involved in being a follower of Christ. He leaves there and he goes to Ephesus. He stays in Ephesus for three years. So there's the example that I started out with today. Now, he's deeply concerned because he only had one month with the Thessalonians. He's deeply concerned that they're going to falter. And when we come to chapter 3 today, and we're picking up right where we left off last week, you're going to see that the, the main thrust of the, the portion of Scripture we're going to look at is that Paul is very concerned that these individuals that had at least made an outward statement that they were putting their trust in Christ and becoming his followers, that, that they were going to falter because they were still being pressured, they were still being persecuted, they were still experiencing a lot of hostility and resistance to being followers of Christ. So with that as a background, let's go ahead and turn to page 1332, and that'll be 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I am going to ask you another question. Go ahead, turn there, because we're, we're going to jump right in. But just be kind of loosely listening. I wonder if you have known someone in your own life and in your own experience that it looked like they were a serious follower of Christ. Maybe you were even there when they first made their decision to put their trust in Christ and become his follower. And they started out rather well. And they went for a time and then something happened. And they slowly but surely drifted away. And now you're not even sure where they're at anymore. How, how many have ever experienced something like that? You've watched somebody 
Start strong, but then drift away. See your hands again? Yeah, lots, lots. Now, I'm going to add one component to that. Actually, I'm going to add two. Some of us in here have experienced that same cycle. Some of us once started out strong as those that had trusted in Christ and were following him, and something happened, and we fell away for a long period of time. It might be something like, well, we, we first came into contact with Christ in a, in a teen youth group or something like that. And then in our young adult years, we just sort of lost it and now we've come back. It's not an unusual thing for me to hear people that have been away from God for 10 years, 15 years, even 20 years sometimes. And so maybe some of you can remember that exact cycle happened to you. And maybe you can start to think back through this message. What was the cause? What, what started my drift? How did I falter? Third question. This is much more personal. Some of you are right there today. You're, you're right at the edge of starting to walk away, to fall away from Christ. There's things going on. You might be keeping it in. Maybe not many people, maybe no one knows about it, but you know about it. You know something's tempting you, something's bothering you, something's seducing you, something's pulling at you, something's frustrating you, angering you, but you're today someone that's right on the edge of walking away from Christ. Whatever the category you may be today, the Spirit of God lovingly wants to draw us close to himself and speak to us through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote so many years ago. Let's go ahead and turn now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we're just kind of picking up right where we left off. He starts, and I, I gave you the page number 1332, so that's those Bibles near you on the chair. So when we could bear it no longer, we decided to stay on in Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother and fellow worker of God in the gospel of Christ, to do two things. To strengthen you and what is the next one? Encourage you about your faith. He was concerned that the pressure that they were experiencing was going to cause their trust in Christ, their faith to falter. He says in verse 3, he says, so that no one should be or would be shaken by these, what is the word? Afflictions. We've read about that in chapter 1, that when they turned to Christ, they were experiencing persecution. For you yourselves know that we are, oh, wait a minute, that must be a mistake. What is that word? We are, what does it say? Destined, Destined for this. Pause. Wait a minute now. You, you want to tell me, Randy, that God loves me and He's got this perfect plan for my life, but now you're telling me that this same God destines me for affliction. That word affliction, it, it can mean all kinds of things. It can mean trials, troubles, tribulation. It can be physical. It can be mental, emotional, relational, vocational, political. In the case of the Thessalonians, it was political, vocational, relational, and economic. But, 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 but that's not the point. The point is it says that this God that loves us, did we misread that or, or does it say he destined us for that? Can we, look, can we look at that one more time? What does that say? For in fact, when we were with you, oh, excuse me, verse 3, so that no one would be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined. Why? Why? 
I, I mean, could it be, I mean, I'm just throwing something out. Could it be that God loves us so much that he cares more about our character development than he does our comfort? And that he knows our character develops best when it's experiencing pressure. When our trust in Christ is being tested. Maybe God knows it brings out the best in us that cannot be brought out. And the kind of development that cannot occur without the same sort of pressures. Maybe, maybe that's it. But that's not really the point of this message. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 4, he says, For in fact... When we were with you, we were telling you in, what does it say? Advance that we would suffer affliction. And so it happened, as you well know. So Paul says, when I was with you, I was only there with you guys for a month, but I told you from the beginning, if you become a follower of Christ, do not think that it's going to be easy. In fact, you're destined for hard times as a follower of Christ in this world because he probably went on to tell them that this world is being uh, manipulated by lots of dark forces. Sin is loose in this world. And if you become a follower of Christ the Creator and you pursue the path of righteousness, you are going to experience friction, affliction, troubles, hardships, difficulties. And he says, don't you remember? I told you in advance that if you become a follower of Christ, this is going to happen. Now he also told them that this gives them the, the final full right to be the human being that God created them to be and to do the things that they were always destined to do that they would receive eternal life in a perfect world that they would be forgiven all their sins he told them the good news in its entirety but he also told them the truth and he said I told you in advance told you in advance He's concerned, he's concerned that their faith is going to falter, that they're going to fall away, that the pressure, that the hardships are going to cause them to pull back. That's his concern. Look, if you would, in verse 5, and this becomes more clear. He says, so when I could, no, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter somehow had tempted you and our toil had proven useless. He's saying, I was concerned that you were going to walk away from Christ. That, that, that the pressure, the affliction. Some of you, you, you've been in this room and you, you know what this is like. You turn to Christ and then all of a sudden your spouse maybe or your family members or your friends, your, your people that you have met, had had close friendships with or maybe at work somewhere, you all of a sudden when they found out that you had made a decision to trust Christ and to follow him, maybe you were mocked, maybe you were made fun of, but maybe you were outright attacked and and all of a sudden you were threatened with rejection or maybe you were even threatened with economic and vocational punishment but you've experienced this yourself maybe in some degree and maybe you even walked through that path maybe this is not the right road maybe this is not worth it maybe I should just chill on, on this Christ stuff because it's getting too costly Maybe some of you can remember going through that sort of a battle in your own mind. Paul was concerned that they were going to falter. They were going to fall away. And he couldn't stand it any longer. Verse 6, he, he had to find out how they were doing. But now Timothy has come to us from you and given us the good news of your faith and what else? Love. And that you always think of us with affection and you long to see us just as we also long to see you. So in all our distress and affliction, we are assured about you, brothers and sisters, through your faith. For now, we are alive again 
if you stand, what does it say? Firm. If you stand firm in the Lord, man, we're alive again. For how can we thank God enough for you all, for all the joy we feel because of you before our God, we pray earnestly night and day to see you in person and to make up what may be lacking in your faith. Remember, Paul was only there with them for a month, and he does ultimately go back to them again. So he's very concerned that they're going to fall away. I want to show you a map. I showed you a map in the first message we did in the series, but I want to refer back again because I want you to realize this happened in real time and space. It's a historical setting. The Bible is different than any other religious writing because it's verifiable by archaeology and so forth. But look at the very top on the left-hand side. It'll be your right-hand side. I guess it's right. No, no, be your left-hand side. Uh, you'll see Thessalonica. And see the green line? Isn't that magical? Um, so he went, Paul went from Thessalonica, then he had to, within a month, he had to go to Berea, and then from Berea, he went all the way down. He didn't go to Corinth yet, Mick. He, 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 went, he, went, to, he went to Athens. <laughs> but anyway, he went down to Athens, and uh, he ultimately, though, as I said in the beginning of the message, he goes to Corinth, he stays there 18 months, and then actually from there he goes to Ephesus. You can see that's just across um, and he stays there for three years. So I, I just wanted you to, to, to have some sense. And, and by the way, this, this on your right-hand side, that whole area, that, that's modern-day Turkey. And uh, over there where he was at was modern-day Greece and in Europe. So you get a sense of where this is going on. So he's concerned that they're going to falter. He's concerned they're not going to continue on in the faith. So Let's ask ourselves this, end-of-time character, what does it consist of? End-of-time character consists, first of all, of unshakable trust. He said that when Timothy went there, he was encouraged because Timothy reported their faith, their trust in God was holding firm, and their love was also holding firm. He says they had an unshakable trust, and that comforted Paul's heart. So Jesus talks also about this issue that, that sometimes people can start out and be seemingly very devoted to Christ, uh, have a strong trust, a strong faith. They start really uh, fervently pursuing God only in time to see that disrupted. Listen to this. When Jesus gave this parable about how the word of God affects people's hearts and how they are affected by it, he says, The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. He goes on. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't what? They don't last long. You've seen it probably. Maybe it happened to you, and now you're recovered. But they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have what? Problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The Thessalonians were being persecuted. So here's Jesus saying, some people, they, they receive the message of the kingdom. They receive the, the message of the truth about God and the truth about life as it centers in Christ. And they receive it with joy. They're excited and they start out following Jesus. But then they start having some personal problems or some relational problems. Or maybe they experience some persecution and they fall away. They walk away. Jesus goes on in this same parable. He said, the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out so the message is in them they respond to it positively but it gets crowded out 
It gets crowded out by the worries of this life. There's a lot of things to worry about if you choose to worry. You can worry about the size of, of your house. You can worry about what kind of furniture you have. You can worry about your job. You can worry about your kids. You can worry about yourself. You can worry about your health. I mean, you, you know, we could just worry about all kinds of things. Well, how much money do I have? How much money I have in the bank? What's my 401k doing? What it's not doing? I mean, you can just go on and on. They get crowded out by the worries of this life and, and the what? The lure of wealth. It doesn't say they get wealthy. They just want to. It's the lure. It's the lure of wealth. It's the carrot. He says, so these people, they don't turn out either. They produce no fruit. They don't stay faithful. They become unproductive. They, they aren't experiencing the kind of transformation that God intends his truth to bring into our lives. And Paul was deeply concerned that that was going to happen to the Thessalonians. He was only there with them less than a month. And now they were being pushed and persecuted. And, and he was wanting to make sure that their trust was staying firm, that their love was still growing. And he finds from Timothy that it was. But this, this notion of continuing in the faith is really critically important. Paul reiterates it in 1 Corinthians. He says, by this gospel, that's just the good news about, you know, God revealed in Christ. By this gospel, you are saved. We're saved from sin because we see its insanity and we no longer want to do it. We know it's destructive to us. We're, we're saved from foolish living, purposeless living, because now we're reconnected with our creator and we're becoming who he meant us to become and doing what he meant us to do. So saved means a lot. By this gospel, you're saved. But now when you're reading the Bible, you always got to pay careful attention to these words when you see that if that's a conditional promise so you're saved you're saved if so it's not saying you are saved necessarily you're saved if if you do what hold firmly to the word hold firmly to the word don't fall away from it hold firmly to the word i preach to you otherwise you have believed what in vain He's saying, if you don't hold firmly to the word, word it's not going to do you any good at all. You're not, he's saying, in other words, you're not saved if you don't hold firmly to the word. Look, look at another one. In the book of Colossians, same apostle Paul writing. He says, you must, of course, continue faithful on a firm and sure foundation. You must continue faithful on a firm, firm and sure foundation and must not allow yourselves to be shaken from the hope you gained when you heard the gospel. It's the same truth reiterated. Be faithful, be steadfast, be firm, be immovable, unshakable, stay devoted, in other words. And you and I have to be realistic, just as those Thessalonican believers could have been tempted, could have been pulled away, could have fallen away, so can you and I and some of us in here, we know that it's happened to us already. There have been times in our life when indeed we were seduced by something, we were somehow moved away from our faithfulness to Christ. Now, I've been serving Christ for a lot of years, and I've observed a cycle. And I'm just going to share this cycle with you only because I hope it will give you a tool to kind of measure yourself at times and, and maybe bring on some red lights so that you can, you know, protect the condition of your own soul. So here we go. I call it the dangerous drift cycle. And it starts with distraction. Uh, my, my attention just somehow gets diverted from Christ. I, I'm not living with my life centered in Him. Then comes the disconnection. I'm, I'm, I'm just not living in a vital fellowship with Him. 
And that usually brings dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction shows itself. I become critical. I become picky. I criticize maybe the church, my fellow believers. I criticize the, the whole Christian world. I, I just get picky and, and negative. Then I get demotivated. I'm not motivated to be in church anymore. I'm not motivated to read God's word. Not motivated to pray. Not motivated to serve God. Not motivated to be around God's people anymore. And that usually re- leads to some kind of degeneration. Old habits start to grow again, creep back in. I start doing things again that I had stopped doing because God had shown me they were destructive. But now I'm starting to do them again. And then that leads ultimately to this last one all-out desertion. I simply walk away from God. And some of you have experienced this very cycle in your own life. Now, it actually goes further. After walking away, it leads ultimately, ultimately in time, to debilitation. You get where you're not functioning very well in any arena of your life. You're finding you're, you're not able to do much of anything very well. And then that leads to this. You get disoriented, disorientation. You get to that place where you say, man, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't even know what I'm doing. I, nothing makes much sense to me anymore. It's a very uncomfortable place to be. But it's, it can be a good place. It then can lead us to desperation. And desperation is good. We say to ourselves, i got to get back to God. I'm falling apart. My life is falling apart. Nothing good is happening. The things that I thought were going to bring me good, they're not bringing me good. I'm going to go back to God. Remember Jesus told that parable of the prodigal son? He gets all dad's money and goes off and squanders it, but then he gets desperate. He's starving to death. And he says, man, I'm, I'm a fool. I'm a fool to have abandoned my father. I'm going back to dad. Sometimes our desperation, after we have fallen away, brings us back to our senses and we return to God. And, and I'm sure some of you in this very room have experienced that. There's a guy named John Lennox. He's a professor at Oxford. And he wrote a book called uh, Against the Flow. And in the book he describes a conversation he had with a Russian man who had been in a Siberian gulag. This is during the days of the Soviet Union. I'm just curious because young people today don't know history. How many of you know what the Soviet Union was? Can I see your hands? Okay, so I'm talking to people who know. <laughs> Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. But during the days of the Soviet Union, this guy, this Russian man, was sent to a Siberian gulag for one thing that he did. He was teaching children the Bible. We, we just asked for children's workers. Could you imagine? Would you, would you sign up if you knew you might be arrested and sent to a, a, a gulag, you know, a, a really dire, horrible prison for just teaching kids the Bible? So anyway... Professor Lennox is having this conversation with this Russian Christ follower who spent years in a Siberian gulag. And I'm, I'm going to just read you the conversation. He described to me, says Lennox, that he had seen things that no man should ever have to see. I listened to him thinking how little I really knew about life and wondering how would I have fared under his circumstances. As if he had read my thoughts, he suddenly said, You couldn't cope with that, could you? Embarrassed, I stumbled out something like, no, I'm sure you're right. He then grinned and he said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in the camp was this. God does not help us to face theoretical situations, but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But once there, I found that God met me exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples. 
when he was preparing them for victimization and persecution. And then Lennox closes with this statement. He said, we can be confident that the Lord will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes our way. But the next word is key. Whatever comes our way, whenever it comes our way, and not necessarily a moment before it. I've, I've experienced this so many times in my life. It's, it's, it's sometimes a millisecond before it. And let me just share one other thing. When God comes in, infuses us with the strength we need to go through whatever it is we need to go through, sometimes it doesn't feel like this massive infusion of strength and peace. Sometimes, to be frank with you, it's just, it's just this ability to live and do the right thing for one more hour, one more day. And then that turns into a second and a third. So I don't want you to be confused experientially about this. Is God faithful in these circumstances? Absolutely. But the feeling sometimes, we still feel very weak when he's giving us just enough to survive this particular ordeal for another hour, another day. So in time character, it consists of, first of all, an unshakable trust in God. And Paul was thrilled that these Thessalonians, though persecuted and over, only having had a month of structured teaching, they were still standing firm. Let's pick back up now in verse 11. He says, Now may God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for who? For all, love for your fellow followers in Christ, but for all, that means everyone, everywhere, just as we do for you. Why, Paul? So that. Now, when you're reading your Bible and you see if or you see so that, remember, perk up your ears, perk up your eyes. So that, he wants us to love one another and to love everyone. Why, Paul? So that your hearts strengthened in holiness to be blameless before God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And the word saints means just ordinary believers. So Paul is saying he wanted the Thessalonians to continue to grow in love for one another, to expand in love for one another, and expand in love for everybody. But he wanted it for a reason. He said that's going to affect you inwardly. It's going to establish your heart in a state of holiness. and it's going to, So inwardly it's going to affect you and outwardly you're going to retain a blameless conduct. Let me share with you what, what it's talking about. When you and I are walking around with the love of God growing in us, we view life differently. We go through life with a servant's towel over our arm. We meet people and, and here's the thought going through our minds. Not what are you going to do for me? How are you going to help me? But quite the opposite. Is there something I can do for you? How can I help you? How can I bless you? Is there anything I can do to encourage you, strengthen you? I, I don't need anything from you. I really, I really don't. I mean, I just want to do it for you. When you have that kind of love mindset, inwardly holiness, the holiness of God is his devotion, his unselfish devotion to do good to all regardless of their reciprocation or not. We then start experiencing God's holiness and that affects our outward conduct empowering us to be blameless in outward conduct. So Paul wanted them to grow in love but he had, a, had a, another reason for it too. He knew it was going to affect deeply their character. First trait of end time character is unshakable trust. The second 
uh, characteristic is unmistakable love. He wanted them to manifest this unmistakable love of Christ. Jesus talked about it. The very last night he was with his disciples. Jesus said this. He said, this is my commandment. Love each other. But, but, but what is, how are we supposed to love each other? Love each other in the what? Same way I have loved you. Jesus had been with these guys three and a half years when he said this. This was the last night he was going to be with them. He says, love each other now. You, you know how I loved you guys for three and a half years. You've watched me. You know what I did. Now do that to each other. Well, how did Jesus love them? Well, he taught them. He encouraged them. He strengthened them. He corrected them. He rebuked them at times. He admonished them. He, when they fell, helped them to recover he helped them problem solve. He told them the truth about God's love and sacrificial goodness. So Jesus did all these things. And so this love that we are to have toward one another, it should be including all those things. And the number one, the number one marker of Jesus' love was Jesus endlessly sought to reconcile people to the closest possible relationship with God that was, that was achievable in their lives. Unapologetically, Jesus was always trying to reconcile people back to trusting in God. When God's love is in us, we should be the same way, unapologetic about seeking because we believe it's the best thing we can do for a human being is to bring them back to a trusting relationship with Christ their creator. That's the best we can do. Therefore, we should unapologetically be seeking to do that in every opportunity that we have. But this love that he's talking about, this, this love is unmistakable in this. It overcomes all norms, all barriers. I mean, I mean, a lot of times it's hard in human love to love somebody that's a different age. You know, the young love the young, the old love the old, the middle-aged middle love the middle-aged. It's hard, to, but this Christian love, this God love, it overcomes age barriers. It overcomes economic barriers. Both the rich and the poor find unity together. It overcomes educational barriers. It's both the educated and the uneducated find unity. They're, they're equal together in their place in Christ. It overcomes political barriers. It is a shame, folks. It is a shame when Christians bicker over politics. Do not fall into that trap. Do not. The love of Christ is superior to one's political views. You can have your political views. God bless you. Keep them to yourself. <laughs> or find, no, I'm going to be serious. I'm going to find people, safe people that, that hold your view and talk it up with them. But don't go fighting with another fellow follower of Christ who has a different political view. That, that, that's silliness. That's not, that's not the love of God in action. I assure you that. This love... It overcomes racial barriers. It overcomes every kind of thing that divides human beings. It's a love that says, you're my brother, you're my sister, if you're just devoted to Christ. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what your cultural practices are. None of that matters. If you're a follower of Christ, you are my brother, you are my sister. I love you. You, you can count on my devotion, and I need to be able to count on yours. That's the kind of unmistakable love that Paul knew these Thessalonians who were going through tough times really needed to know they had. When you're going through a tough time, you need to know that you have brothers and sisters in Christ that are going to believe the best about you. They're going to encourage you. They're going to stand with you. They're going to pray with you. They're going to cry with you if need be. They're going to always, always believe that God's still at work in you, and he's going to bring about 
a Christ-like version of you even when you're down in the most difficult, embarrassing times. I mean, this Christian love is a beautiful thing, beautiful thing when it's active. And that's the kind of love that Paul was hoping would continue to increase in the Thessalonians in spite of the difficult circumstances they were in experiencing. And folks, you're, you're just like me. When you are going through a personal hardship, when I'm going through a personal hardship, it, it's, it's easy to become full of self-pity and become self-absorbed and to think about nothing but my problem and my pain and my challenge. But this Christian love, it lifts us past that and it allows us to still give of ourselves to others in spite of our own struggles. It keeps us, this Christian love, this, this God kind of love, it refuses to allow us to be bitter. It refuses to allow us to have malice in our heart toward another human being. It refuses to allow us to have prejudice and hatred. It just won't let it exist. It's a beautiful and it's a powerful thing. And Paul knew that. <clears throat> and he so wanted these Thessalonians to retain it, as I do for each and every one of us in here today. Listen to what James says. Here's another factor about this unique, unmistakable Christian love. One of the things that it does. He says, my brothers, if any of you should, and we're talking about this all through this message, should wander away from the truth. Paul was worried about the Thessalonians wandering away, but they did not. But James was very realistic. He says, if any of you should wander away from the truth, some of us have at times, and another should turn him back onto the right path, then the latter may be sure that in turning a man back from his wandering, back from his wandering course, he has rescued a soul from death and covered, oh, excuse me, uh, and, excuse me, and his loving action will cover a multitude of sins. Notice that this, this turning someone back from a path toward destruction, from falling away from Christ, it's called loving action. So this love of Christ, when you see somebody faltering, when you see somebody wandering, when you see them distracted, when you see them starting to drift, you go after them. I'm just going to ask you, how many in here, you were adrift at some point, and you don't even know how somebody know, but, but, but some other Christ follower involved themselves with you and they encourage you, and somehow they put you back on the path. Maybe they didn't even know they were doing it. How many of you have ever experienced something like that? Can I see your hands? That's amazing. Nearly every hand. You see, this is, this, is, this is God's beautiful love in action. We need each other. We all need encouragement. We all need to be righted at times. We all need to be confronted and corrected at times and put back on the path of life. Let me close with a story. It's one of my favorite. I've, I've shared it with you before, but I doubt that you'll remember it. It's by, uh, or it's about a lady named Michelle Attaway and uh, a man named Jay who ultimately became her husband. It's a long story, but it's a powerful, beautiful story. So bear with me because I'm just going to read it. When Michelle Attaway moved in with her boyfriend Jay for a life of partying and drugs, she assumed Jay's parents would turn their back on them in disgust. So it was a bit shocking when Jay and Michelle were instead invited over for dinner. She writes about the events that followed. I was incredulous because I knew that Jay's parents were normal people, the type that crossed to the other side of the street when they saw people like us. Not only that, Jay had told me that they were religious. Yet sure enough, we were invited to dinner, and the thought of a good meal eventually convinced me to go. 
To my surprise, when Jay's parents, uh, excuse me, to my surprise, Jay's parents welcomed us warmly into their home. As we sat down to eat, I was painfully aware that my appearance, torn clothing, tattoos, and a dozen body piercings clashed with the elegantly decorated table. Yet his folks treated us with friendly respect, even asking whether we wanted to play Scrabble afterward. I was bewildered by their kindness over the next few months. Jay's mom continued to contact us. Sometimes she brought a sack of groceries. Other times she wrote letters that quoted Bible verses saying she was praying for us. We'd read the letters to our friends and have a good laugh. Your mom must be crazy, I'd chuckle, but the laughter couldn't mask the emptiness I felt inside. And our lifestyle of partying and drugs was only getting worse. Once after a week-long partying and drug, <laughs> whole week of drugs and partying, I became aware of the spiritual darkness in our lives. We were both, Jay and I, very scared, and we called his parents, who immediately came over with their pastor and some friends. Though we fully expected to receive criticism and disapproval, these church people These, these church people simply stepped over the trash on the floor, looked past the ugly death and skull posters on the wall. We even had a black paper bat hanging from the ceiling. Shoved aside the drug paraphernalia. You know what? When God's people really, really let his love fill their hearts, there's no one more beautiful. I hear people criticize Christians all the time, and I've seen the most beautiful human beings on this planet are those that follow Christ and let his love deeply get a hold of their hearts. They behave like this. Let me, let me read this further. Michelle says, I was deeply touched by their love and acceptance. I've been struck in a, I had been stuck in a downward spiral of depression and despair and when I heard that God could give me a brand new life through Jesus Christ, I bowed my head and I turned everything over to him. Equally moved, Jay prayed as well. From that moment, we knew our lives needed to change. Realizing it wasn't right for us to be living together outside of marriage, Jay proposed to me that very day. After a hippie-style wedding outdoors barefooted, Jay and I began attending my in-law's church. I noticed a sharp contrast between our untrustworthy friends and the reliable love the reliable love of the church members this was the kind of love I wanted I wanted to receive that kind of love and I wanted to show it toward others gets a little funny here joining the church's women's group or, or I joined the church's women's group but as the only married teenager I felt out of place and unable to relate to the other ladies I couldn't understand <laughs> their excitement over getting out the hot glue gun and making dried flower arrangements. <laughs> Nevertheless, they didn't give up on me. Nearly every day, Jay and I were gifted with some form of love acceptance. <sighs> By our fellow church members. We struggled financially but we would find anonymous checks in the mail or sacks of food on the doorstep. Once a new set of soft flannel sheets turned up on the front porch, we read our Bibles and attended a study group. And as my relationship with God steadily, excuse me, steadily deepened, I began to yearn for the opportunity to share his love with kids who were as troubled as I had once been. 
So Jay and I began to volunteer with a youth ministry, working with what at the time were kids very much like us. They were, uh, excuse me, I lost my place here. Uh, talking with these kids, talking with these kids in dirty, torn clothing reminded me uh, at how needy a time, of, a, of the same kind of a needy time in my own life. Genuine Christian love had looked beyond appearance to a heart that needed Christ when they saw me, and it cemented my determination to show the same unconditional love to others. So Paul was worried that their faith would fail, that they would fall away, and he was concerned that their love would continue to grow. And so here today, nearly 2,000 years later, the Spirit of God is concerned lovingly with the same things with us. He doesn't want any of us to fall away, nor does he want us to be a community that makes it easy for people to fall away. You, you know one thing you could do that would be powerful? How many of you sit in the same seat every Sunday? Can I see your hands? <laughs> same basic section. What if? Just, just a little what if. What if you took notice of the people that sit in your section and you started making a point that anyone in that section that you've never said hello to, you start saying, hi, my name is Randy, what's yours? You don't have to say Randy, whatever your name is. <laughs> How long have you been coming to FCF? I, I'm so glad to know you. And then you watch for them. And if they miss a couple Sundays, you do what you can to check up on them because now you know, man, that kind of love is powerful. And that'll keep us from falling away and the love of Christ will just grow and grow and grow. Um, I've run way past my time, so I've got to pray quick. Let's do that. <laughs> Father, I just know you're at work. May our hearts be swung open wide. May those that were near falling away be drawn back. May each of us be strengthened to be those that lovingly care and watch over one another. And may our love just move outward toward those that are still apart from you. Lord, give us courage to invite those that are apart from you, to pray for them, to serve them, to love them, and to like them. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.